Hey there, listeners of the Partial Historians. Tell me, are you doing anything on November 4? No? Well, Dr. Jean, I have just the invitation for you. Come along to the Intelligent Speech Conference for 2023 and hear us and other amazing presenters talk all about the theme of the year, which is contingencies. What happens when history meets the backup plan? How intriguing does that sound? Just head along to intelligencespeechonline.com to buy your tickets now. And if you're worried about the time difference, never you fear. You can, of course, join in the event live online, but you can also watch the videos afterwards at your own convenience. So what are you waiting for? Go and grab your tickets now. And if you use the code PEACE, P-E-I-C-E, at the checkout, they'll know the Partial Historian sent you and you'll get a lovely 10% off. We hope to see you there. Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from political scandals to love affairs, the battles waged and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different ancient authors and comparing their accounts. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a special episode of The Partial Historians. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I am Dr. G, and we're pretty excited about the conversation that we're about to have today. I mean, personally, I'm a big Hercules fan, and that might be a little bit of foreshadowing. Indeed. We are so lucky to be joined by, I think it's safe to say, the world's largest expert on Hercules, which is Alistair Blanchard. Alistair Blanchard is the Paul Eliadis Professor of Classics and Ancient History, as well as the author of some amazing books that you might like to get your hands on, including Classics on Screen and Hercules, A Heroic Life. Thank you so much for joining us, Alistair. Great to be here. And uh, I'm not sure about the largest expert, but certainly (laughs) the biggest fanboy for for Hercules. That makes you the the expert in our book. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about Disney's Hercules in particular today, which is really great for us because we've been revisiting a lot of classic films and so Hercules naturally fits right in but before we dive straight into the Disney version of things it's probably good to give our listeners a bit of background on who Hercules actually is or dare I say Heracles. Yes absolutely so uh Heracles, as he's known amongst the Greeks, and Hercules, uh, as he's called by the Romans, was probably the most popular of the ancient heroes. Certainly, his worship is found throughout the Mediterranean, from signs uh, in the far corners of Spain all the way through to southern France. Indeed, the modern Principality of Monaco is actually named after, in fact, a temple uh, dedicated to Hercules, Hercules Monoikos, Hercules the man who lives alone. And so Monoikos, 
Paphos becomes Monaco. Uh, but you know, his worship continues, obviously, in Greece, all the way through the Black Sea to Olbia, Panticopeum, you know, places like where modern-day Ukraine is. Uh, and of course, there are important sanctuary sites in Lebanon, North Africa. So throughout the Mediterranean, Hercules was a figure that was well-known, well-respected and worshipped. Absolutely. I, I seem to recall some uh, Roman emperors liking to dress up like Hercules and run around arenas. And we were just actually talking about Little Nas X and his music video for Call Me By Your Name and how he might be dressed up as Hercules, but like a, a baby pink Hercules. <laughs> well, well, look, don't even get me started on that video clip because that is, for a classicist, one of the greatest clips ever. I mean, not only does it include all the Colosseum-type uh, scenes, him dressed up as Heracles, but also a quotation in actual Greek uh, from Plato's Symposium as well, uh, from Aristophanes' speech about the nature of the soul and how it's looking for its long-lost partner. So so for a classicist, that that is the film clip to end all film clips. It is basically catnip for classicists, I would <laughs> exactly, say. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> who, who knew that that was the niche market he was going for? It's done really well. Uh, we now all talk about it and we have a great time and all of us kind of like, we just want to meet him and sit down and have a good chat about it. <laughs> yes, I, I really want to know who who chose that, that passage from the symposium because it's so perfect in terms of the concept of the song, um, but also the decision to carve it onto the tree in, in Greek is really, re- really striking. I know, we, we were speaking to Yentl Love about it because we've done a special episode just on that one particular clip and we were asking her like, where does this come from? Like, who is working on this? Is this all from him? Like, who are the people that he's consulting with? And also, how do we get a job? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to drag it back to Hercules and Heracles, thinking about the sort of how he's positioned in the ancient world, what are some of the sort of key touchstones in the mythology that surrounds this figure so that we can set up a sort of a comparison between what the sort of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Mediterranean world thought about this figure and the stories they told and how that might end up comparing to what Disney presents us with. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a very, very good question. And it's a really interesting question to ask for Heracles because one of the things about Heracles is because he's worshipped in so many different places, there are so many different stories. And so we imagine really that the mythology around Hercules was in Enormous. Every place would have had its own little Hercules story, its own variation about how Heracles came to their town, often established, you know, uh, an important institution or uh, or a rite. Uh, and so really, in fact, the, the myths that we have about Heracles that have come down to us are probably on the tip of a huge iceberg of stories that would have been circulating in, in antiquity. Uh, I guess in terms of thinking about the grand narratives to occupy Hercules's life, that I think, I guess there there are probably a couple of kind of key points. Um, obviously, the 12 labors is a is a central point. And uh, these were the 12 labors that Heracles had to perform uh, as expiation for the murder of his wife and children. And that's a, a topic that I think we'll, we'll get into discussing, particularly when we come to the Heracles film, because uh, it's totally glossed over. But Hercules, the wife killer, the child killer, has to wash the blood from his hands. And he does this uh, by performing a number of labors for King Eurystheus. That's, you know, oh, I guess one of the great central themes or stories 
stories that relates to Her- Hercules' life. There are a number of other other kinds of stories. There's a story uh, about his eventual death, where uh, he is poisoned effectively by a woman who loved him, Deonyra, who accidentally thinking that she's going to make Heracles love her by applying a love potion to his clothes, is in fact tricked into a- applying a kind of burning poison to his clothes, and so he dies in agony. Uh, and uh, his eventual uh, soul ascends uh, to the heavens, where it's worshipped as a divine, uh, as a divine figure. I guess that's one of the important stories. I guess the other sort of important story is the story about his birth, which again was a kind of very important one. So uh, again, it's a story that the Disney film isn't particularly keen on uh, on showing because it's all a story about adultery and deceit uh, and involves uh, Hercules being the product of Zeus or Jupiter coming down to Earth, falling in love with a woman by the name of Alcmene and then appearing to her while her husband's away in the form of her husband. And he then sleeps with her, uh, and she thinks she's sleeping with Amphitryon, her husband. Now, in modern days, this would be rape, right? This is a classic case of what lawyers would call rape by personation. And uh, this is, you know, you know, consent uh, achieved by deceit. But the ancient world didn't see this as rape. They, they saw this as just a very convenient uh, ruse on the part uh, on the part of Jupiter. Uh, and indeed, they even played it for comic effect. So, for example, Plautus in the play Amphitruo um, has this as a kind of comic setup with you know, people going, you know, are you Amphitruo? No, you're Amphitruo. And uh, it, they play it for kind of laughs. Now, now, you can play it for laughs. The Greeks also played it for tragedy. So, in fact, we know that there is a fragmentary tragedy, the Alcmene, which takes this scenario and which has Amphitryon arriving back at home to discover that his wife uh, has been sleeping with another man. He doesn't believe her claims that she thought she was sleeping with her husband. And in fact, he puts her on her pyre and is about to set fire to her and incinerate her alive when, in fact, the Zeus uh, appears and sorts everything out. But this extraordinary birth story of Hercules, who is the product of this rape by deceit could be played for both comic effects and tragic effects in the uh, in the ancient world but those are, I think I think those are I think the three stories the birth the 12 labors and the death I think are probably uh, the three key elements in the Hercules narrative yeah and like most Greek myths I think it doesn't automatically scream made for children in this modern age because there is just so much murder and violence and trickery and adultery and all sorts of issues that run all throughout Hercules' life. Yes, look, anyone who started to tell a Greek myth for children suddenly finds themselves having to gloss over over things. Um, the numbers of nightmares I've given my poor nieces and nephews as, I, as I've told them stories of, uh, uh, of the ancient world is really, uh, really too many to name. And yet I suppose we're all the products of being told Greek myths as children as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting that there is obviously so much violence at the centre of these stories. And I think that's it's definitely not uncommon for the ancient world to sort of have these sort of like lessons that are really sort of bruntly felt upon the body as much as upon the psyche. And yet somehow Disney has thought, you know what would be a great tale to tell? 
on the animated screen, the life of a hero. And who better to choose than Hercules? Yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. As you say, I mean, Heracles, Hercules is the figure that, in fact, the ancient world does a lot of thinking about in terms of violence, right? So he's the figure, in fact, who is so violent, so bloody in terms of his actions, that, in fact, the Delphic Oracle refuses to wash his hands of blood. So you know, he, he turns up, you know, having murdered a whole series of people again, and turns up to the Delphic Oracle and says, look, you know, once again, sorry, kill, have killed a lot of people. Can you wash the, the blood of my hands? Can you make me once again clean? And the Delphic Oracle says, no, not this time. I'm just sick of you turning up here, you know, completely covered in gore, uh, having just murdered a whole lot of people. We're not going to do it this time. Uh, and Heracles is outraged. He grabs the tripod uh, on which the oracle sits and he says, I'm going to go and establish my own oracle that will allow me to be cleansed whenever I need it, which is obviously a lot. And at this point, Apollo appears uh, and wrestles the tripod back from Heracles. And uh, we have this in a lot of ancient art. There are a lot of ancient artistic depictions of uh, Apollo and Heracles wrestling over the Delphic tripod. Now, what's interesting is that Zeus intervenes uh, and he sends a thunderbolt which splits the, the two. And, and he says to Apollo, look, it's your job to purify those who commit crimes. So yes, you're going to have to purify them again. In. Uh, and so establishes the principle that, in fact, you know, there's no crime for which uh, you shouldn't be able to get purification from. It's an important Greek principle, uh, and uh, and it's Heracles who becomes, as it were, the the test case for this. That uh, if if you could if you can cleanse Heracles of blood, then basically you can cleanse anyone. Goodness me, I felt like when you were talking about that kind of detail, it just put me in mind of like where Roman Catholicism ends up, and I was like, oh, that's a fascinating sort of. Anyway, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> but nevertheless, this idea of Hercules like sitting in this really interesting nexus of putting limits to the test whether they be physical endurance whether it be the necessity to be cleansed I think this leads us really nicely into thinking about the film and potentially how they've decided to characterize Hercules in the Disney version through his physicality. Yeah, look, it, 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 it was a really interesting choice uh, for them to do a Heracles film. They canvassed a couple of other options. They were clearly very keen to do something in the ancient world. Uh, and two stories were greenlit. So there was a one, a project based on Homer's Odyssey, and a, a project based on Hercules. And in the end, they decided to go for Hercules. Now, their thinking about this was quite interesting because they felt that the Odyssey was something too sacred, that you couldn't play about with uh, with the Odyssey in the way that you could do with Hercules. That Hercules you could have more fun with, interesting concept, uh, <laughs> and also uh, that, it, that he was far more adaptable. And that second issue of adaptability, I, I think they're on to something, because as I say, there are a lot of Hercules stories. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think there was a bit more play in the, in the, in the Heracles myth in a way that there isn't uh, with the Odyssey. That said, no one would have recognized what they did to the Heracles story in the ancient world. But, uh, but certainly, the, I think the notion of the adaptability of Heracles vis-a-vis -vis the Odyssey is probably, probably right. But, but an extraordinary, an extraordinary, extraordinary choice. Yeah, well, I suppose to give us a bit of context for the film. So Hercules comes at the tail end of this real resurgence for the Disney studio. So it was released, I think, in 1997. 
And Disney, of course, has just had a string of mega hits like The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, all these sorts of films. And so Hercules is coming at sort of the tail end of this particular era. And I believe that they were kind of thinking that Hercules might be more for a preteen, particularly male audience. Yeah, absolutely right. So this is you know, the eyes, so-called Eisner era in Disney, right? So, you know, after the disaster of Black Cauldron in 1985, which almost put an end to animation in Disney, uh, the Disney Corporation decides, oh, we need to really rejig things. We need to rethink the whole program in terms of animated films. Uh, and so Michael Eisner and then Roy Disney together really rejig the animation studios to tremendous success as you say you know kicks off with little mermaid beauty and the beast aladdin uh lion king then heracles and of course they'll go on to pocahontas uh so an extraordinary resurgence and you know disney is just hitting it out of the park in in terms of these in terms of these films until it hits hercules uh and as you say they're trying to do something different right so you know little mermaid beauty and the beast aladdin lion king Primarily the age group they're looking for is the kind of six plus. I mean, that's the, the rough age. It, Hercules, they think, well, look, we've conquered that demographic. Let's do something different. And so it's an 11 plus audience, so slightly more mature and also much more Boise as well. And and that's, I think, really interesting for, for Disney because, uh, I mean, it's really interesting to think the way in which Disney dominates the, the female demographic. You know, the Disney princess is, you know, the thing that <laughs> kind of dominates female childhood in a way for, for many bad, <laughs> many bad purposes. And indeed, it's something that they're kind of now rethinking. But uh, there hasn't been, as it were, a kind of dominant Disney narrative um, for boyhood. And Heracles was their attempt to do that. And as a result, Heracles represents a slight tweaking in terms of uh, the, the genre and in terms of the format of the film. So, so if you look at things like, as you say, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, you imagine right a ratio of comedy to drama of about three to one. Now, in the Heracles film, what we see is a, a shift more towards drama. So there's slightly more drama, and also the nature of the comedy changes as well. So it's less of the sort of physical comedy, though there's still quite a lot of physical comedy, but much more kind of knowing, ironic, self-reflexive kind of uh, kind of comedy. So this might be a good moment to give a very brief overview of the plot line of this movie, particularly because we've told our listeners so much about, you know, the murder in Hercules's life and that sort of thing. So what have they done with the basic plot line? What have they told us about Hercules in this film? Right. Okay. So what, they, what they've done is they've taken various elements of Greek myth and combined it together. So the overarching narrative is the narrative of the Titanomachy, right? The, the great fight between the Olympian gods and the, the Titans and Titans slash giants. And so what they've done is they've taken this narrative from myth and they've reworked it in such a way that in order for the gods to succeed in a battle against the Titans, which are imagined in the Disney film as kind of elemental forces of chaos, uh, in order for the gods to defeat the Titans, they need to have Heracles on their side. And this um, really alarms the evil figure in the, in the film, who is Hades. Uh, who is cast as the villain, who wants to overthrow his brother Zeus. He really wants to, and he wants to overthrow the gods, and he wants to align himself with the Titans. Now, in order to do this, he needs to get rid of Heracles. And so he does that, first of all, by trying to 
poison him as a child. And uh, unfortunately, this doesn't succeed. Um, but what he does do is he manages to poison Heracles so uh, enough so that he becomes mortal a very strong mortal. And so he is then fostered out to some mortal parents. And this is Amphitryon and Alcmene, the figures of who are the, traditionally accorded as the parents of, of Heracles. And then Heracles grows up as this strong, you know, out of place, awkward adolescent who doesn't really fit into society. His his strength makes him always kind of unduly clumsy. So so in a sense, he's kind of every awkward adolescent, right? And he speaks to the awkwardness of adolescence. He discovers that, in fact, he's the son of Zeus and desperately wants to rejoin his real father uh, as a god. And so he does all sorts of actions to try and achieve godhood. This is uh, ultimately unsuccessful until he realizes that it's not the actions uh, of uh, that make you a god. It's, in fact, what's inside. Uh, and uh, that's what makes a true hero. And, uh, and this only happens when he falls for a, a love interest by the name of Megara, who, unfortunately for him, is a pawn of Hades, and she tricks him into sacrificing his life for her, and uh, he does uh, he he does that, uh, and then uh, eventually the Titans are emerge. Uh, but because of the sort of sacrifice that Heracles has made, he's allowed to in fact become a, a great hero. He can then rejoin the battle, turns the tide, uh, saves uh, the Olympian gods, um, and then at the very end, when he's just about to be welcomed into Olympus, which is you know imagined as the sort of pearly gates of heaven, a sort of Olympus is in fact a kind of gated community in this film. He decides it actually really he wants to be on earth with Megara who's had a change of heart who's realized that deep down all along she loved Heracles and uh, together they kind of go off uh, uh, happy live at least in the Disney world happily ever after <laughs> I mean it's the sort of thing where there's so many small details that have been altered and changed along the way to make this incredibly interesting and it puts you in mind of not just how Disney is attempting to sort of make Hercules sort of fit within their own sort of genre standards, but also the ways in which they're trying to reshape how you might think about ancient heroism in terms of a modern hero. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a real clash between a model of heroism which is derived from antiquity and a model of heroism which is imbued with this very strong Judeo-Christian ethos. And uh, and you see it in the figure of, of Heracles because, you know, in the ancient world, in order to be a hero, all you need to do is just be famous, right? Heroes were just famous people. They were often morally bankrupt. I mean, Heracles is a good example, right? You know, not only is he a murderer, you know, he's a rapist, he's a glutton prone to violent outbursts. You know, he famously murders his music teacher as a child. I mean, he's really a, a, just a terrible person. And so, you know, trying to kind of tidy him up, make him more moral. And again, it's the same with Odysseus as well. Deceitful, really, again, violent, bloodthirsty figures. But but that doesn't matter to the ancient world. You know, you know, as long as you're famous, as long as you're spectacular, as long as you're blessed by the gods, that's what makes you a hero rather than having any moral content. Now, Disney offers you a totally different version of heroism, right? Um, heroism is what's on the inside, right? And th there's a constant discourse throughout the film about what makes a true hero. 
Now, this is a distinction that the ancient world wouldn't have recognized, right? You know, a hero, true hero. There's only either you're either a hero or you're not a hero, right? The idea of being a true hero is something that they wouldn't have recognized. And indeed, th this comes to the fore in one of the great musical sequences in the film, which is the zero to hero sequence. My personal favorite. <laughs> I just love it. I mean, just it's the one that gets me humming and tapping. I mean, I know we're all supposed to love you know, Michael Bolton's Go the Distance, but uh, but for me, it's zero to hero. And in, and in this sequence, what we have is this wonderful montage of Heracles, Hercules doing all the kinds of things that in the ancient world will make you a hero. You know, he beats monsters, but more importantly, you know, he gets cash, he gets fame. He's got these fangirls that are totally obsessed by him. You know, it, it's this one. He, he's doing uh, endorsements for running shoes. It, it's this wonderful sequence about kind of fame and importance and monetary wealth. Now. In the ancient world, this is all you needed to be a hero. But the end of this sequence involves Heracles going to, to Zeus and saying, well, look, you know, I've done everything you need me to do. Why aren't I a hero? And he's, ah, it's a hero who comes from inside. You know, you think, no, he's done everything he needs to do. <laughs> Make him a hero. But it's it's a great sequence because, in a sense, the, the musical number is supposed to show you what isn't what doesn't make a true hero. But actually what it does is give you a very good example of what would have made a hero in the ancient world. Yeah, and you got that great line when uh, Her Hercules is talking to Zeus's, well, Zeus is a statue that's come to life. And he says, you know, look, I'm an action figure. And I think the ancient world would have been like, yeah, right on. <laughs> Absolutely. That sequence is lovely because it, it plays with the very famous Chris Elephantine statue of Zeus at Olympia, which has, of course, come to life. And, and that's the thing that what, what everyone says about the, the content of the film, visually, it's extraordinary right you know Gerald Scarf one, one of the really great artists uh, you know famous for doing Pink Floyd's The Wall as well as uh, a really series of important political cartoons for Punch and Sunday Times you know just it's just done a fantastic job with this film it doesn't look like any other kind of Disney film and but it's just so visually clever I mean the you know he he was obsessed by the the line that you get in Greek vases and so you see you know even the drops of water that fall kind of when they drop they drop like uh, in the shape of Greek vases the the landscapes are extraordinary it's just the most beautiful exciting visual film and there are all these lovely little quotations of of ancient sculpture of ancient vase forms uh time and time again the wonderful occasion of ancient architecture uh so so visually the film is is lush and wonderful yeah, I think there's a real visual richness to Hercules's body as well. The swirling lines that that sort of demarcate like his chest and his ears and things like this, which is a real visual echo to ancient Greek sort of artistry as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's very clear that that Scarf uh, has been uh, interested by the by Greek vase painting, particularly in his depiction of Heracles. And indeed, there's a long tradition of artists particularly line illustrators being obsessed by Greek vase painting. So you can go back to someone like Aubrey Beardsley, for example, who again, obsessed by Greek line painting. So, so, so animators, line artists have always found a huge inspiration uh, in, in Greek vase painting. So do you think as well that the appearance of Hercules in the animated version has been influenced by the representations of Hercules that have come before? So famously, Hercules has been embodied by strongmen or bodybuilders. So people like Steve Reeves, people like Eugene Sandow, and more recently, since the Disney film, of course, we've had The Rock. So do you think that that sort of physical appearance has characterized the animated version as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's worthwhile observing that there are two essentially body types in this film, right? There's the young, kind of scrawny adolescent uh, Heracles, and then there's the Heracles that uh, uh, emerges after Danny DeVito, otherwise known as Philoctetes, otherwise known as Phil, uh, <laughs> takes him in hand and transforms him into this buff, uh, gorgeous body. And both those bodies are really interesting. I I'm struck by uh, what Disney did with this kind of awkward adolescence because I think that's probably the critically most successful bit of the film is imagining this hero as this kind of uh, awkward adolescence uh, and it's striking that actually the most important I guess spin-off of the film was in fact the Heracles animated series that they did for television which was a series of episodes of essentially young Heracles at school and his his friends he's got a a, a fantastic Cassandra friend who's always having these visions that no one uh, understands and an figure who's kind of been flying too hot close to the sun is kind of spaced out and, and that that was a re that was probably much more successful i think critically than the film itself and it focused very much on that adolescent heracles and I, and I and i think that's quite interesting but as you say when when he when he's buff and and full-bodied he's absolutely in line of the kind of standard peplum uh heracles that we know from figures like steve reeves um whose 1960s heracles films really defined uh defined our notion of what heracles has been or should be and indeed i mean there's a as you say, there's a long tradition. It starts with Sandow pretending to be the weary Heracles in his famous stage show, where he imitated uh, Lysippus's uh, famous statue of the weary Heracles. Th that body type of Heracles is quite interesting because it makes a Heracles that's very good at lifting things, breaking things. Not so good at running. I mean, you know, if you've ever seen a bodybuilder run, right, you know, their thighs get in the way, right? There's just a lot of chafing that's happening there. And and that's interesting because of course one one of the labors of Heracles is in fact him chasing down the Sinitian hind of Artemis. So so one of the uh, one of the very famous labors of Heracles involves him really running very fast. And yet it's hard to imagine any of these bodybuilders running uh, fast or indeed, you know, uh, in a sense Disney's Hercules as well. You've actually highlighted that I think a bit in your work, the fact that the Hercules body that we're perhaps familiar with as modern audiences kind of only became possible once we were able to feed ourselves, you know, so many particular, you know, vitamins and nutrients to turn our bodies into something would have really been possible or practical in an ancient world context. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. We, we live in this this amazing moment, right? So there are two uh, key key changes. Uh, the first one is the ability to isolate muscle group and train individual muscles, and that becomes possible around the turn of the 19th century with people like Sandow developing equipment for the isolation and training of individual muscle groups. The second thing, as you say, is the tremendous change in diet, right? So, you know, you can go to the supermarket and you can now eat protein in a density and purity that is unparalleled. Uh, so, so we can do things with our bodies that we've never been able to do before. So we can get the Hercules look. I, I mean, for me, it's always very interesting because in the ancient world, you know, people don't operate with that low amount of body fat, right? Those Herculean bodies that we see, or indeed even the kind of the slim, taut, you know, Greek god-style bodies that we see uh, in gym, 
they would have fallen over the first famine or long winter, right? You know, unless you've got a decent amount of body fat, you're not going to survive that winter. You're not going to survive famine. And we know that every time we model the ancient economy, we have to figure in, you know, probably one to two years, every 10 years for for famine or for struggling to, to meet your daily calorific requirements. So, so you know, those bodies wouldn't have, wouldn't have survived a long winter, uh, which, uh, again, always interests me. Yeah, it puts us in a situation where even for the ancient Greeks, their idolized body is, is risky because it's right on the edge of the limits of what might be possible in their context. Yeah, as I say, these are, these are bodies which are actually, although they're proclaiming health, they're more importantly proclaiming wealth. That is, this is a body that doesn't need to worry about where its food's coming from. Uh, this is a body that can run itself right on the edge because it knows that actually it's a, it's a very wealthy body for whom it's always going to have access to resources. And so so when we look at those athletic bodies, we need to see them both as signs of kind of physicality, but also as signs of wealth, class and status. Yes, definitely. And thinking about the film, not just in its sort of physicality of Hercules, but also thinking about how figures like the Olympian gods are coming into play. Certainly there's an a sort of an extended elaboration of their physicality as well. But I'm actually potentially more interested in their characterization compared to how we understand them from Greek myth. Yes. Uh, and what we see is a very reductive attitude towards the the Greek gods. So the Greek gods stand for one thing and one thing only, right? So Aphrodite is a goddess of love for example. But we know that in the ancient world, she was also a sea goddess, importantly depicted always with a dolphin by her side. She's the person that you uh, pray to for safe voyages. Likewise, you know, Dionysus uh, is represented there as the god of wine, but he's also the god of theatre, the god of madness, uh, has an important role in in the underworld as well uh, through the certain Dionysiac mysteries. So these multifaceted gods that in the ancient world had all these various different dimensions to them just effectively get reduced in the Disney Hercules to only standing for one for one thing. So, you know, Poseidon is the god of the sea, but he's n- not the god of horses, not the god of earthquakes, for example. And and it goes on uh, uh, again uh, and, and again. There are some lovely jokes. I mean, you know, there's a wonderful joke about Narcissus, for example, who's always you know looking in, in his mirror. And, 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 and that's kind of right, I think. You know, this is really only famous for being obsessed by his beauty. But but in all other respects, their depiction of the gods is very, very reductive. We see this, for example, perhaps most strikingly in Hera, um, who, you know, in this case, is, just becomes this sort of doting, simpering mother, rather than the extraordinary, powerful goddess uh, in her own right, who is responsible, in fact, for making Heracles' life hell, right? You know, if you go to Greek myth, it's it's Hera that's in fact the the main cause of all his all his problems, and in fact, it's Hera who's responsible for perhaps the most tragic uh, event in Heracles's life, which of course is sending the goddess of madness, Lyssa, so that Heracles goes mad and murders his wife Megara uh, and all his children. And this is the extraordinary, tragic, dark sequel to, in fact, the Heracles film, because the Heracles film ends with Hercules and Meg Megara 
you know, arm in arm together, off to be this loving couple. Now, if you know your Greek myth, you'll know, well, look, it's looking fine now, but, you know, give it a few years and Hera, Hera should, in theory, be sending madness to uh, ensure that Heracles will be murdering poor old Meg and all the kids they have as well. So so there's this kind of really dark kind of that uh, every time you see Meg uh, on stage and you think, oh, God, no, just, just run from him, you know. Uh, and there are all these kind of lovely things where Heracles says, you know, I'll never hurt you, Meg. And you think, oh, oh, you are going to hurt her big time. No, I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it, it really, these kind of dark ironies that run through the film. Yeah, I did think it was very interesting that given that Hera, as you say, like from, from the moment of his conception, basically decides she is going to play Hercules, because of course he is living proof of Zeus's uh, unfaithfulness, the fact that he slept with this mortal woman and that kind of stuff. His name obviously even comes from from Hera as well. So it's interesting that she's not the villain that Hades is. And I think that says obviously a lot about how we understand the god of the underworld. You know, it must be something dark and evil and something down there, whereas Hera is up in the light, cloudy world of Olympus. But Megara has, is definitely a character of fascination, partly because she's obviously come into a lot of criticism because of her appearance. So the fact that, I mean, all the women, but particularly Megara, I think, have this insane body shape, which may or may not be a Greek vase, but boy, that waist is tiny. <laughs> uh, and they have turned her into this like wise-cracking female love interest, which, as you say, is such a weird choice because, yeah, if you know your myth, she she's going to get murdered by Hercules. Yes, and certainly that depiction of Megara is something that, that is very common and aligns with a lot of the depictions that you're seeing in the Eisner-era Disney, where there's a, an attempt to have a slightly more sassy, slightly more independent kind of female figure. Um, and, and of course, you know, Heracles comes just before Pocahontas, which will um, be that. And then, of course, Mulan afterwards, which, you know, so so you can sort of see a bit of a a trend beginning with Megara going on to uh, going on to Pocahontas and Mulan in Disney thinking. But, you know, for all her independence and agency, you know, it's still Heracles who saves the day and uh, is the key centre of the narrative. We also get this sort of complexity in the plot as well, whereas Meg comes across as being quite independent and having a strong sense of personal agency, only for that to be revealed to us in terms of the plot that she, actually she's in the grip of Hades's power. Yeah, although in in her defense, you know, she did it because of her bad choice in men, right? She fell for the wrong guy and ended up, uh, you know, selling herself to to Hades to save him, only for him to abandon her and leave her uh, as a slave to uh, as a slave to Hades. So, you know, for all her kind of sassy, wisecracking nature, you know, ultimately, what it really matters if you're a woman is, are you able to choose the right guy? That that that's what will lead to success or not not your brains not your your ability with a, a quick wit actually it's can you establish a, a meaningful relationship with a man uh, that is uh, uh, that is the success thanks a lot disney thanks a lot <laughs> and she wound well, up with the guy who's going to murder her yay yeah, exactly yes, yes, yes. well at least you don't have to be a princess now that's, yeah, that, that, that's the important thing what a relief <laughs> small steps small steps <laughs> So I'd love to very quickly talk about some of these other characters that we've mentioned in passing. So some of the other sort of major minor characters, the supporting cast, are of course Hades and Phil. So do you have any strong feelings about the portrayal of these people? Phil obviously not being based on a real 
god or something per se <laughs> but uh hades definitely yeah. yeah. So, so, so I, I think I think Phil is really interesting, right? Mm. So, Danny DeVito does a great job with uh, with with uh, the figure of Phil. He he's short for Philoctetes, so it's playing on uh, another figure figure from the Heracles cycle. So, Philoctetes was famous in antiquity for having this pussy foot that um, meant that he was abandoned by his companions who sailed on the trip to Troy left on the island of Lemnos. But importantly, Philoctetes was an associate of Heracles and had the bow of Heracles. Uh, and so eventually they have to come back, apologize for abandoning him on the island of Lemnos, and he then gets reincorporated back into society. So so that's the story of Philoctetes, known in antiquity as a friend of Heracles, the person who, when Heracles is dying, gives the gives his bow to... Um, but not his to, personal trainer. <laughs> but not his personal trainer, no, no. And certainly not a satyr either. That's the other thing, is uh, that he's been turned into a, a, a satyr in this, uh, in this film. But yes, yeah, and, and again, j- just a great figure, you know, playing on... A kind of cinematic tradition of the the boxing trainer, the particularly the Jewish boxing trainer. And there's a there's a way in which Philoctetes picks up on particular trends uh, in sort of cinematic uh, New York Judaism. And so so he's he's this trainer who turns Heracles in from like this kind of weakling into this uh, uh, wonderful buff hero. A great role by uh, Dane DeVito. And certainly a good role by James Woods in Hades. Look, again, played with wonderful, suave sophistication, a fantastically good line in delivery. I mean, this kind of wonderful drawl that uh, uh, that he has. Uh, yeah, no, a, a good figure, but a, a complete villain, very much uh, you know, picking up on Judeo-Christian ideas of, of hell, of the devil, uh, of the trickster who is always getting you to sign uh, agreements for which you don't see the, uh, the secret clause in. So um, again, grounded not so much in Greco-Roman antiquity, but very much in you know, Judeo-Christian views of the, of the devil. But it does offer us this amazing kind of scene right near the end where Hercules enters into the underworld and we get our moment of katabasis that is happening where the confrontation between Hades and Hercules happens on Hades' territory, which I think, I don't know, I just really love that sort of moment. I don't know, it's it's not really, I don't know if I even have a question really. It was more an observation. <laughs> but, but look, as you say, it, it's a lo- as you say, it's a lovely um moment uh, and again you as you rightly point out picks up on an important epic tradition namely the tradition of the descent to the underworld the catabasis you know whether it's odysseus in the odyssey raising the the dead whether it's aeneas in, in the aeneid this idea of the descent into the underworld and so, so again uh, very uh, very ancient in terms of an element within ancient narratives the depiction of course is completely judeo christian the, the flames, uh, the location, um, the you know it picks up on you know medieval traditions of hellscape. So so there's a, a you know it's really that kind of Renaissance medieval tradition that Scarf is is working through in terms of the visual depictions. Um, but as you say, an important element uh, within a ancient narrative traditions. And I'd love to also bring up one of my favourite elements of the movie, which is of course the muses. <laughs> What are your thoughts on the muses? <laughs> how, how have we taken so long to get to the muses? The muses are the best bit. They are far and away the stars of this film. Such a clever idea to have them as this kind of backup singers. They're kind of sassy. They're funny. You know, it picks up on the idea of the Greek chorus. But what's really wonderful about them 
is the way in which they kind of undercut so much kind of pomposity that uh, runs through the film. If you if you remember that wonderful opening sequence, which begins with this you know voiceover, um, about, Charlton Heston, no Charlton less, Heston, yeah. of course, <laughs> Charlton Heston, you know, uh, giving this fantastic kind of pompous voiceover, and then the the, the muses kind of stab say, "Hang on, wait a minute, it's not going to be this kind of film," uh, and then they they launch straight into their jazzy number and that they are they are clever they're funny that they, they i think inject a, a very different kind of tone to this film that they're, they're they're great they're absolutely great i, I can't get enough of them <laughs> i think they form a great counterpoint as you say and there's that gospel tradition that is coming through in the way that their musical numbers operate as well, which I think is a really interesting way of tying the ancient Greek world to sort of more modern and contemporary American cultural elements for the audience. Absolutely. And that opening number, Gospel Truth, really you know indicates you know what track kind of musical tradition they're they're, they're working from and, and again it, it kind of is a lovely way of sort of undercutting a lot of the kind of potential whiteness that runs through the runs through the film as well so it, it begins with these kind of white statues and then suddenly what we see is in fact this you know shot of a vase on which the the muses are emerging right so so we're getting color in a way that we haven't you know before we're getting different kinds of musical traditions emerging this is going to be a very different kind of way of doing of doing greek myth that that is uh, at least within disney world envisaged as much more inclusive and uh, a, a story that is available to all and of course there's one more character i have to mention Pegasus. Oh, Pegasus, yes. Yes, who has no place in a Hercules myth. <laughs> not at all, not at all, but <laughs> but it, it is kind of gorgeous. I mean, he's he's part flying horse, but also part Labrador as well, right? I mean, he's, he's, just, he's, he's this kind of fantastic sort of companion for for, for Heracles. Um, you're, you're right. I mean, taken from the, the mythic sequence relating to Bellerophon and uh, and kind of totally out of uh, out of place, but but also also kind of wonderful for uh, for the film. I do love it. Now, obviously, I think we've ho- hopefully told our listeners that Disney's Hercules is actually an amazing blend of playing with epic film, Greek myth, American culture. I mean, there's so many aspects that have come together, you know, Christian ideas, it's all in this film. But we always have to kind of finish up by thinking about, well, what are we talking about when we're talking about the historical accuracy? How important is it for film in general, animated film? I mean, what are your thoughts on trying to achieve historical accuracy in this sort of a film? Well, good luck. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, you know, f- first of all, you know, tr- tried producing a film uh, about Heracles and not having it and, and doing it without doing an R rating, right? You know, it, it's impossible. So, you know, look, you know, some of the things that, that you know worry me about the the film are the way is in which um, you know Heracles becomes commodified into this very kind of middle class aspirational suburban kind of hero and I think you know there's a way in which you know Heracles could have been a, a more inclusive figure that um, speaks to a much wider demographic than I think was was potential there I mean I think you know the fact that Olympia is really depicted as this kind of aspirational gated community is is I think a, a, a problem I, I think also the fact that it, it fiddles around with the birth narrative in such a way that you know Heracles is not the product of rape but is in fact the product of a very happy heteronormative couple 
So, so again, I think the potential to to explore, you know, at least issues around uh, adultery or blended families, or even just um, if the, the issues of kind of fosterhood are are really ignored in that. So, so I, I think you know there, there there are I think missed opportunities in the in the film. I think that's always a nice thing about Greek myth. It's I think it would have been acceptable to ancients that we play around with it, but as you say, it's the impression that we give our own culture as well that also has to be considered. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and I mean, yeah, you know, th- there was tremendous tremendous play in Greek myth. I mean, the, the classic example would be something like Euripides's Heracles, right? Which, the, the, as I say, the normal sequence when we tell the story about the labors of Heracles is Heracles murders his wife and children and then does the twelve labors to make up for it. Euripides t- turns that on his head and has, you know, Heracles performing the twelve labors and then murdering his wife and children, um, because what he wanted was a tragedy which had a man at his very highest point when he thinks he's conquered death, gone down to the underworld, brought back Cerberus. There's nothing that can touch him, and then to be brought low by, in fact, being uh, caught up in the machinations of Hera and the murder of his wife and children. So, so even within the ancient world, it was very possible to do tremendously interventionist things with the Heracles storyline. So so that wouldn't have worried the, the, the ancient world. And I think then, given the amount of play that we have with Heracles, that then has a kind of interesting ethical ob- obligation on us, that is, if we're going to play around, that we need to think about, you know, what we uh, what kind of stories we tell. Definitely. And I think this is the sort of place where it's probably a good chance to wrap up. And because I feel like we could just keep talking about this film <laughs> and and the connections to Heracles for hours. And I know that you need to go and live your life. And <laughs> and I just want to thank you so much for coming and sitting down and chatting to us today. Yeah, absolutely. Great fun. Great fun. Always, always good to chat with you. Absolutely. So just a reminder that if you'd like to read up on some of the issues we've touched on today, if you'd like to delve more into the life of Hercules and the myths surrounding him, you definitely want to pick up Alastair's book on Hercules, Hercules, A Heroic Life. And if you'd like to learn more about film in general on screen, including Hercules, then please pick up Classics on Screen, which is a fantastic book, which has got chapters on lots of different movies. And Alastair is the co-author of that. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. We hope that you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please consider becoming a Patreon. It is thanks to our marvellous Patreons that we are able to make special episodes like this. We'd also like to once again thank Professor Alastair Blanchard, the Paul Eliadis Chair of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Queensland, for coming on the show and chatting to us all about Hercules. If you enjoyed listening to Alastair, He really does have a wide array of publications out there beyond his work on history on film, and he's also a regular contributor to the conversation. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.